We are in our second week in our summer series. Last week's sermon is online. If you missed it, it all ties together, the gospel and the Ten Commandments. If you didn't like my sermon last week, you can look at Clackamas Valley Baptist sermon or Barton Church's sermon because we're all doing the same biblical text together. They do a really good job as well, so I love partnering with these other pastors. Last week, we looked at the first commandment, Exodus 20, verses 1 through 3. The key there is you shall have no other gods before me. We covered a lot of ground last week. I want to try to summarize what we covered with three words that I shared last week. Here they are. Henotheism, monotheism, and syncretism. The first command is not encouraging henotheism, which is the worship of a supreme God above all the other gods. That's not what this is about. It's not about making sure God is at the top of the list of all the other gods. It's about monotheism. It's a clear statement that there is one God and only one God that can be and should be worshipped. All the other so-called lesser gods are just pretensions and delusions and a deception. This first command forbids syncretism. That's trying to accommodate other religions' view of God into the biblical view of God. There is only one accurate view of God. It is contained in the pages of Scripture. So as we move on today to our second commandment, of course, it's directly related to the first commandment. Interesting how God does that, right? He ties all these things together. Thomas Watson, who was a Puritan writer back in the 1600s, said this, In the first commandment, worshiping a false god is forbidden. In this, the second commandment, worshiping the true god in a false manner is forbidden. So here's the main point. Let me tell you up front. God has sufficiently communicated who he is so that we would worship him alone. God has also sufficiently communicated how he is to be worshipped so that our worship will please him alone. So we're going to look at three verses today, but I'm going to have Roy come up because he's going to read to us our scripture text. We're going to read all 17 verses every week because by the end of the summer, I want you to know this portion of scripture. He's going to read it. It will be up on the screen. Would you please stand together with us if you can? And follow along with the reading of God's Word. While you're following along, that's Exodus 20, the first 17 verses. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness <clears throat> of what is in heaven above, or on the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, 
to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but on the seventh day it is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or the sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that the days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these words you have given us. We thank you for the translations we have to read them. And today, as Brent opens this to us and explains it to us, may we have open hearts and open minds to hear what you have for us today. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Thank you, Roy. So the first commandment prohibited worshiping the false gods and the idols of other nations. The second commandment prohibits the use of idols in worshiping the one true God. The first commandment has to do with who we worship. The second commandment has to do with how we worship, and more specifically, how we shouldn't worship. So first, we're going to ask this question, what does it mean? What does it mean when it says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth? We need to approach it, first of all, by what it doesn't mean. This is not a prohibition of art carvings, if they're found in church or even in your home. And the reason some have even thought it means that is because the word you see on the screen as idol would be more accurately translated as it is in ESV in the King James Version as a carved image. The word literally means to carve, whether wood or stone. So it would be one of those places where the New American Standard doesn't have the most literal translation. They just kind of imply this is an idol. So some could say, based on that, that you should never carve something out of wood or metal, whether it's that wood carving of an eagle you see in your house or that image of the elk, which is in downtown Portland. I don't know if it's back there yet. I remember they removed it. Or... Bigfoot in front of Estacada's City Hall. <laughs> this command is not a prohibition against carving animals, 
birds, fish. It's actually the same word used later when Moses is told to carve again the two stones so God could rewrite those Ten Commandments. We also know, as we look at the biblical context, Solomon was given instructions when he was to build the temple to put some carvings of things like pomegranates and palm trees and flowers. And I'm sure you know the cherubim was an image above the mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. Of course, behind me, there's a cross. It's not chiseled or carved. It is very nicely hammered to look as it is. We have stained glass windows in our church, as many churches do, that show God's creation. All that to say God is not prohibiting art or artistic expression. I would say God is the greatest artist ever, amen, when you just look at what he has created. The Old Testament actually acknowledges some by name in the Old Testament who were gifted or given the ability to do that very thing for the sake of God's glory. So then, what is this prohibition prohibiting? It's not prohibiting making art for the glory of God, art that would be used for the glory of God. It's prohibiting the carving of images or creating something for the worship of God. Again, that's why we have in the New American Standard and other, the translation, an idol. So I want to be really clear up front. The second commandment is not about worshiping other gods, whether the gods of the culture or the gods of other religions. We covered that last week. This second commandment, hear me out, is about trying to worship the one true God in the wrong way. This is about manufacturing or making something visual or material that is godlike to help us, to aid us, maybe even to prompt us to worship a God that is invisible, which scripture says God is spirit. This is about creating something tangible that we think is needed to worship God, the God that is beyond our comprehension. Now, it's interesting. We pointed this out last week that a short time after God spoke these words and then wrote them down, the people that these words were first uh, presented to created an image. What was that image? Do you remember? It was a golden calf. So let me just take you there. You're familiar with this. Remember Moses went up on the mountain. They were gathered down at the base and they got restless because he was up there for a long time. So they gathered around Aaron and said, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has come of him. And Aaron said to them, then tear off the gold rings which are on are in the ears of your wives, your sons, your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took these from their hand. We have another slide. There we go. And fashioned it with a 
graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose to play. Now a number of questions surfaced. Where did they get all the gold? God provided it for them. Remember when they left Egypt, the people of Egypt were so anxious to see them go that they literally gave them gold and silver, as Scripture says, and even articles of clothing. They said, please leave us. Why a calf? That was a very common image of worship. It actually was a symbol most often of strength and fertility. But please notice at the end of verse 4, they say, this is your God, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. The people are not rejecting the God who rescued them. They are trying to recreate the God who rescued them. Notice verse 5, Aaron made a proclamation. Tomorrow should be a feast to Yahweh. That's God's name, the one that he used in verse 1. This is how God identified himself. So they're identifying with this God. They weren't denying Yahweh. They were dedicating a feast to Yahweh using a golden calf as kind of a proxy for this Yahweh. So understand what's going on when Moses is up on the mountain. They get restless. And one could ask, so why didn't they just look to the God on the mountain to worship Yahweh there? Well, you remember, they were terrified of that God. You remember when that God spoke, they said, Moses, you go talk to him because he scares us to death. And if we approach him and if he talks to us anymore, we just might die. So giving that understanding, I'll just say it kind of makes sense to me, almost reasonable, that they want to acknowledge this terrifying God, but they don't want to approach the terrifying God, so they create a much more practical God, a much more manageable God, a nicer God. We'll worship the terrifying God through this proxy. They melted their gold and out came a golden calf. That's what Aaron says later on when he's confronted about it. So again, I'm I'm not justifying what they're doing here. I just want you to understand really what they are doing. In their minds, it's probably logical and reasonable. We're not rejecting this God. We are recreating this God so he is easier to worship. Not so scary, not so terrifying, not so intimidating. A golden calf, that's nice, right? How does God respond to that? Exodus 32, verse 10 
Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. And Moses, I'll make you a great nation. God was not pleased, even though it seemed reasonable and rational, and maybe even logical in their mind, this was idolatry, and God was not at all pleased. So then we have to ask the next question, why wasn't he pleased? They were trying to worship him. Let me tell you why God wasn't pleased. First of all, because that sort of idolatry, for whatever reason, whether it seems reasonable or not, it divided the attention of the people from the one true God. I want you to notice there's verbs here. You shall not make, you shall not worship, you shall not serve. That seems like a progression to me. It's one thing to simply make an image, and maybe if it stopped there, maybe the consequences are less, I don't know, but it didn't stop there, really. Once it's made, it's what? Worshiped. That word means to bow down, to prostrate oneself, to crouch, to fall down, to humbly beg, to do reverence. That word would be used in bowing down to a king, and it's actually a word used to bow down and worship Yahweh. So the golden calf, once it was made, it didn't like sit out on the edge of the people, was brought front and center. The text says they gave offerings to the calf. But that's not the end of it either. It says don't make an idol, don't worship an idol, and then what, what's next? Don't serve an idol. Now, that word's used many times in the Old Testament. Here's what's really interesting. It's most, and it's not most often, oftentimes it could be translated bondage or slavery. Isn't that interesting? God had rescued these people from bondage and slavery. And then he's saying, don't go back into bondage and slavery by somehow putting something between God and you. And remember, just three months earlier, God had delivered them from bondage. And now, they hear, now they're here serving and becoming in bondage to something that they've created. So there's just a principle that surfaces here, not just for those people, but for us. Here it is. Anytime the people of God create something from their minds and by their hands that's a proxy for God to help them worship the true God, that something then becomes God. It, because it's in between the one true God and us. It became, becomes the proxy, the portal, the channel. Now we're diverted from the one true God to this thing. The second reason this idolatry is such a big deal is because it demeans God. Notice it says, you shall not worship or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a, what? Jealous God. I think that's number one, kids. 
Now, it's interesting to connect jealousy with God, isn't it? Because in our minds, this whole jealous thing is a bad thing. From a human perspective, it certainly is. Because from a human perspective, this idea of being jealous comes from envy and greed and pride. But I found it very interesting, this Hebrew word translated jealousy in the Old Testament is never used about people. It's always used and only used about God. There's not too many of them. Let me just show them to you quickly. Exodus 34, you shall not worship any other God for the Lord, for Yahweh, whose name is jealous, is a jealous God. Deuteronomy 4.24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. You should not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Deuteronomy 6, for the Lord your God in the midst of you is a jealous God, otherwise the anger of the Lord your God will be kindled against you and he will wipe you off the face of the earth. So one has to ask, what's the difference between this tainted jealousy of man and evidently this holy and perfect jealousy of God? Here it is. Human jealousy, it stems from a desire to have something we don't have and maybe even shouldn't have. Whether that's a person or product or position, it's not ours, but we're jealous to have it. That's human jealousy. Divine jealousy, on the other hand, is not about something God wants, but something that God rightfully deserves. There's the difference. God rightfully deserves all the worship. Good place for amen. He's worthy of all the worship. He rightly deserves all the worship because he is the only God that should be worshiped. That makes sense, right? If God is the only God, then only God should be worshiped. It is rightfully his. He deserves it. So if an idol used in an attempt to worship God gets any of the attention that is his, then God's jealous. He says, no, that's mine. You're giving attention to something else. Even if you think it's an attempt to, to get to me, your attention is there instead of fully focused on me. Another statement. Let me just read it. God is jealous, not because he needs to be worshipped as if in some way it fulfills something in him. He deserves to be worshipped because it is right. And the wonderful part about that is those who do that find the fulfillment in them. That's the beauty of it. Any kind of adultery then idolatry demeans God. Isaiah 42, 8 says, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. The third reason 
that this idolatry is so out of place is because it minimizes the very character of God. Let me say it again. In the context of this passage, God revealed himself in thunder and trumpet sounds and dark clouds and fire, and it was terrifying. The people said, you go up there, Moses. We don't want to be near this God because we're afraid for our lives. And that was no exaggeration. God actually said, if you come up here, you're dead. And it's interesting, a short time later in our story, Moses makes an honorable yet a very naive request of God. Let me show you this in Exodus 33. It's part of the bigger context. Then Moses said, I pray, show me your glory. And he said, God said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. But he said, read it with me, you cannot see my face for no man can see me and live. That word face, because God is spirit, doesn't really have a face, it is you can't see my presence. You can't, you can't, I'm, I, I can't show you me. I can't show you myself. And then it's really interesting, again, looking at the whole biblical context. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, when Moses kind of says this all over again, look at this, this is amazing. He says, remember the day you stood before the Lord your God at Horeb, when the Lord said to me, assemble the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so they may learn to fear me all the days they live on the earth, and that they may teach their children. Verse 11, you came near and stood at the foot of the mountain, and the mountain burned with fire to the very heart of the heavens, darkness, cloud, and thick gloom. Then the Lord spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You heard the sound of words, but you saw no form, only a voice. As he reviews this, he says, now remember, you heard what God said. God revealed to you what he wanted you to know through these words. He didn't show you a form. That's as God intended it to be. He revealed to them what they needed to know through what they heard. They didn't need to see a form to have that validated. Moses goes on to say in verse 15, so watch yourselves. Watch yourselves carefully since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb from the midst of the fire so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure. See what he's saying? It's like he knows where they might go. Be careful. Be careful that you're not going to take that God that spoke so wonderfully to you and try to put it in some sort of an image. He's saying, remember what he said. That's enough. You didn't need a form. And yet, what did they do? Going back to the golden calf, they made a form. And so it was not only demeaning, but by its very nature, because it was handmade, it had to minimize God, right? The people, in an attempt to worship this transcendent, magnificent, terrifying God, minimized him 
to a nice, shiny, golden calf. And God in his jealousy says, don't demean me. Don't divert our attention to something else. And don't minimize me and my splendor by making something with your hands. And then Moses reminds them, God didn't reveal to you himself in a form. He revealed himself to you in words. Those were true words. That's enough. Put your faith in what he has spoken to you. I don't know, even if I say that, you understand the implications of that for us today. Just stepping away from my notes just a little bit, God has revealed himself in words. Amen? We have a book full of God's words. That makes us, that gives us what we need to know about God. We don't need something more, some sort of visual, some sort of experience because he's giving us his word. And then, of course, the Apostle John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning was the what? Word. And then he says, and the word became flesh, Jesus, the fullness, and we'll end there today. So why is this a problem? It divides our devotion, it demeans God, it minimizes God. And the last thing I want you to see here is why it's a problem, because it's deeply consequential, not just to us, but for generations. So it's interesting, in the midst of this now, going back to our text, after he says he's a jealous God, he says what? Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Now that phrase is repeated in Exodus 34 and Numbers 14 and Jeremiah 32, and it's widely misunderstood. This does not mean that God punishes children for the sins of their parents or their grandparents. That's not what it says. It says clearly the iniquity or the sin or the perversion would be another translation of the fathers is continued on in the children and the grandchildren. So if the children and the grandchildren are experiencing the same punishment of the parents or the grandparents, it's because they are continuing in the same sin. And that's the whole point of this as it ties in with idolatry. Generations have made images, and they pass those images on to other generations, and they bear the consequence of that. Not because the punishment is passed on, but the sin is continued on generation to generation. Now, of course, parents, grandparents, we know how easy that is. Our children, our grandchildren watch us, amen? Sometimes that good. We had Titus over, our uh, youngest grandson, and I was out washing the car, and he was inside, and what did he want to do? He wanted to wash the car with me, so I taught him how to wash the car, kind of. It only lasted a few minutes, and then he got bored. But anyway, that was a good thing. But if I practice idolatry and my grandson sees me somehow making an image or somehow bringing something in between 
God in me, then he sees that, he does that, and he bears the punishment of that just as I would. So this phrase is not about generational curses or hexes. It's about generational sin. The sinful actions and attitudes of parents and grandparents have consequences in the lives of children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Our children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren will not be punished for our sins, but our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren might very well carry on our sins and experience that punishment. But of course, there's a positive side to this phrase as well. He says, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Again, focusing in, there is blessing when we keep the commandments of God. Amen? Even now in the New Testament, there is blessing in following in and having our lives align with the Ten Commandments even as we focus on Jesus. And there is blessing in that. And as our children see that, then they become blessed as they practice that, and their children as they practice that are also blessed. From generation to generation. So we need to just make this real practical for just a moment before we get to our last point. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says this, For we walk by faith, not by what? Sight. Now, in the context of that, the Apostle Paul is talking about our future glory in heaven. We walk by faith that we'll, inmate, we'll, we'll be there, we'll inherit that, and we don't do it necessarily by sight. And yet that principle that we live by faith and not by sight is not just about viewing heaven, that eternal home, but how we live our life. God has revealed himself in his word. And we are asked to live by faith in his word regardless of what we experience and regardless of what we see about God. And so each of us must ask ourselves if somehow we've created visible images or idols somehow that we need to see to somehow prompt us as proxies. So I'm talking about the cross we hang around our necks or that we hang on our wall in the hallway? Is that cross a physical image that somehow we feel we need because if we have it, God is more present with us? When by faith we know God is present with us, amen? We don't need a cross to somehow symbolize or even make that real. You've probably seen professional athletes who wear crosses around their necks. And again, I don't, I don't know anybody's heart about crosses around their necks, you or athletes. But I'm always concerned when after a big win or even before the game, they grab the cross and they kiss it. That seems like we've maybe stepped over a line. As if this cross was the lucky charm that got them the win, 
And because they were wearing the cross, God was with them in that. And again, if you're wearing a cross, but you think that cross makes sure God is with you, that cross has become an idol and it's out of place. It's interesting, in 1 Samuel chapter 4, I'm not going to show you this, there's an interesting story in Israel's history where they had the ark of God and they had this idea this ark was like a lucky, a, a lucky charm. And if it would, they, they, they took the ark into battle first and because we have this ark, God is with us and the enemy will be defeated and the enemy wasn't defeated because their faith was not in God, but in what? The ark, a visible image. What about the painting or drawing of Jesus that we have in our living room or our hallway? Is that a physical image that somehow is needed to help us worship an invisible God? Now, this became very personal to me. I remember in my college, I went a couple years in a real small college in northwestern Colorado. In my college room, and I don't even know where that painting is now or the drawing, I had a, a picture of Jesus. I don't have any idea where I got it. I don't remember buying it. I don't know if it was a gift, but I took it to college with me. I've been thinking, why did I like that image of Jesus? Because it was one of those images that was different than most we see. It was Jesus as a real man. He was rugged. He had rugged, manly features. And that's how I wanted Jesus to look. Do you see what's wrong with that? That's how I wanted Jesus to look. Do we know how Jesus looked? We have no idea. Prophet Isaiah actually says that he had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So then you have to ask, so why do we put pictures up of him? That seems inconsistent to me. What about the place we reverence? The place we want to be to make our experience with God more meaningful. Like, we have to be in a certain place to meet God. If God is everywhere, do we have to be in a certain place to pray or to have communication with God? Certainly not. I'll remind you of the conversation that Jesus had with uh, this woman, um, a Samaritan woman. Uh, he wanted to talk with her about her life, and she kept diverting, and, and she said, well, what about the right place to worship? Here's what Jesus says in response to that. He says, woman, an hour is coming, and now is, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Notice he says, now is that time when we worship in spirit and truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. Verse 24, read it with me. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus tells her it's not about a physical place. It's about faith in God who is spirit, so the specific place of worship is not the issue. It's faith in the heart that is the issue. So please hear me clearly, I'm not saying that the cross you have is wrong or the picture of Jesus you have is evil. 
I bring those up because they might be. They might be. If you are trying to create some sort of a path or a portal through an image or of a picture with which you can approach him somehow an aid by which you can focus on him, that thing, whatever it is, is now an idol and God is jealous that any sort of your attention would go to that as opposed to him. This is one of the points that the writer of Hebrews makes as he emphasizes the need for faith. He says, without faith it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God must believe that he is. We must believe that he is. He exists. We believe that by faith, not because he has made something visible to us. And then we believe that he rewards us as we seek him in faith. Suppose a woman walks into a room and finds her husband embracing another woman. That man sees the wife out of the corner of his eye and he says this. Now wait a minute, honey. Don't get the wrong idea here. Let me tell you what I was doing. This woman is so beautiful. She reminded me of you. I was really just thinking of you when I was embracing her. Wives, what do you think? There's not a woman in America that would think that's okay. My wife would slap me across the face. Lord, wait a minute. Don't get the wrong idea. I was only worshiping this thing because it reminds me of you. I'm really worshiping you. Do you see how that relates? God says, no, you're not worshiping me. You're worshiping a thing that's kind of like me. So we've looked at what this second commandment means and we've looked at why it's important in some practical ways it applies. So I'm anxious to get to this last point. Where's the gospel in this commandment? Last week when we talked about the first commandment, Jesus is there. He is the one true God. In the same, in the second commandment, we see Jesus in a beautiful way. So let me just share a couple other New Testament passages so we can land firmly on Jesus here. In this passage you see in John 14, it's in the midst of a conversation Jesus is having with his disciples. And in the midst of that, he tells them, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know me and have what? Seen him. Now that prompts a question in Philip's mind. Jesus saying, you've seen me, you've seen the Father, I'm equal. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has what? Seen the Father. How can you say then, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is me? Look at this. The words that I say to you, 
I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his work. Jesus says clearly to Philip and to us, if you want to see God, believe in me. If you want to experience God, put your faith in me. And to flesh that out even more, Jesus is saying, believe what I say. Believe what I've done. Believe the revelation that I've given you of God in his fullness. Jesus is saying here, I am the final focal point of the revelation of God. We could go to Colossians chapter 1 where the Apostle Paul talks about this image idea as well. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15, he says, He, that is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn or the preeminent one of all creation. For by him all things were created both in heavens and on earth, (laughs) visible Invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He, that's Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church. He, that's Jesus, is the beginning, the preeminent one or the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in how many things? Everything. Jesus is the full and final manifestation of the invisible God. Nothing else will do. Nothing else is needed. Jesus is the preeminent one in all creation, so we shouldn't worship anything else in creation. Jesus made everything, so we don't use anything then to worship him Simply worship and put your faith in him. Now, it's interesting. Some would take this passage in some sort of tortured logic and say that Jesus actually broke the second commandment by making the invisible God visible. But I think more accurately, Jesus fulfilled and completed the second commandment by bringing to us the full manifestation of the character than the attributes of the eternal God. Now notice, he goes on to say in this passage, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. So let's wrap this up here. So it's not just faith in what Jesus has said. It's not just faith in who Jesus is. It is now faith in what Jesus has done. He's made peace through the blood of his cross. He is the only one then that is able to bring us back into a relationship with this invisible, eternal, transcendent God. And that's why Jesus had to take on human flesh to be visible because he needed to literally die physically for your sins, for my sins, so that our sins could be atoned for 
that we could have forgiveness so the righteousness of God could then be in us and we could be in relationship with a holy, righteous God. That's the gospel, amen? That's the beauty of it. That's what it always comes back to. Jesus is the full manifestation of God. He is the completion of the second commandment. It's why we worship him and him alone. So one of the ways that God has, in Scripture, directed us to worship him is by way of reminder of what he has done. That's why we have the bread and the juice. And let me say clearly, this bread is not Jesus this juice is not Jesus' blood. That is not what's happening in communion. God in Scripture has says, you're going to forget. You're going to forget that it's all about Jesus and what he's done, so you're going to regularly get together as a congregation and take a piece of bread and eat, drink some wine so you remember that it's all about Jesus. That's why we do communion. And parents, you need to spend this time as we share communion here in a little bit, making sure your children understand this. This is not some sort of ritual we just work through. It's where we remember again that it's all about Jesus. Scripture encourages us in the book of Corinthians, except for 1 Corinthians 2, to take some time to reflect, to pray, to celebrate what God has done for us in Jesus. And then these elements are just a celebration, a serious celebration of what he has done. So if you're new with us, I honestly don't know if we do this a lot different than other places. It's how we do it here. The elements are on tables around the room. The musicians are going to come and they're going to help us sing some songs to prepare for this time. And then when you're ready, you can go get an element, take it back to your seat with your spouse or with a friend or with your family and celebrate that it's all about Jesus. Amen. Let's pray as we move into this time. Father, I'm so thankful for your word. I'm so thankful that I have the privilege of being able to chew on it and then just uh, speak about it. And, and I'm just hopeful and I'm prayerful that uh, your truth has taken root in our lives to the point that we would recognize that you are all in all. You are everything. You've created everything. You are the one true God. We need nothing else. I'm so thankful for this time that you're bringing us back together and you're reminding us about what you did for us in Jesus. You made a way through his perfect life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. It's the only way we can know you. So we're gonna celebrate that and Father, may you use this time in all of us to redirect our hearts back to you if we've drifted, if we've sinned, if we're, if we're entertaining things that are just contrary to all that you desire for us. Work in us, please. That's our desire. So as we sing, we worship you. May these songs be pleasing to you.